Hey guys, Bryce here from Flex Cortex. All content on the Flex Cortex podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is not a substitution for medical advice from a qualified health professional. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. guys welcome to this week's episode of flex cortex today i have the pleasure of speaking with dr chris swart chris is a highly qualified individual with a vast background with the majority of his education being in exercise science and physiology today we'll be speaking about gut health and some considerations to improve your own gut health and some things to be aware of when you're trying to keep your gut health healthy Um, again this is a very new topic um, probably only about 10 years of gut health research so it is ever changing and growing, but that is like most things in this industry itself. So a lot of this information today will be very applicable, whether you guys are an athlete or you know, you're just trying to improve your overall health. But I hope that you guys do enjoy it. If you want to follow him on Instagram, his Instagram is at Dr. Swart. So D-O-C-T-O-R dot S-W-A-R-T. But thank you guys so much for checking this one out and I hope you enjoy. So what drew you into fitness to begin with? Excellent question right off the bat. So when I was a a young kid, you know, I I was involved in every sport I possibly could play. You know, I played football, I played baseball, I dabbled in basketball and individual sports, team sports, and I loved it. I loved being a part of, you know, a team and, you know, being in the leadership role as a quarterback. Uh, it, It was a lot of fun for me. However, as a young kid, I was relatively undersized. I wasn't as strong as some of my peers. I wasn't as fast as some of my peers. So I started lifting weights at a very early age. I mean, it was, I was like in the sixth grade, sixth, seventh grade, and I was going to the high school weight room and, you know, just kind of learning a little bit of what I needed to to do. And, And looking back on it, I realized how poorly the training was structured, you know, at that time period, but we didn't know any better. It was throw a bunch of weight on, you know, it wasn't a huge emphasis on form. It was just, you know, more weight. You're in a football weight room. That's what it was. It was a bunch of egos. And I had a couple small injuries, nothing major, but I attribute a lot of that to the poor training that we were doing in the high school years. And when I went to college, you know, I played football in college and had a couple knee injuries and just couldn't stay healthy. And so I decided, you know, I want to get into fitness. I want to get into the health field to help people, number one, become more athletic. That's kind of my original plan in the health and fitness industry. I was a strength and conditioning coach. So I was more on the athlete side and I wanted to help people kind of, you know, not go down the rabbit hole of poor technique and getting injured all the time and being in the rehab cycle over and over again. So I decided that, you know, I wanted to get a master's in strength and conditioning. So I spent some time as a strength coach and all that. And now in, you know, today's day and age, 15 years later, Now I'm more so, I mean, I'm an educator, I'm a professor now, but I tend to put more content that's more so for the general public as opposed to athletes. So, you know, my athletic background is really what pushed me into this field for sure. So what drew you from wanting to work with athletes? Because obviously you have like your CSCS and you were working with athletes before. So what drew you from that to wanting to work with more gen pop? I think it is just in general, the progression of life of myself, you know, as a young kid in my mid, you know, early to mid twenties, I cared so much about sports. I was just coming off of my own, you know, kind of life uh, shelf life as an athlete. 
and I wanted to kind of keep that going. I love the atmosphere of a football locker room. You know, when I went in strength and conditioning, it was primarily football. I worked at the University of Connecticut. I worked at the University of Iowa and the University of Maryland in different roles and responsibilities. But that's what I thought I wanted to do forever. You know, I wanted to be an NFL strength and conditioning coach. And as my life progressed and I started to realize, you know, as you start to get a little bit older, okay, there's a quality of life that's also important. It's not just how fast are you, how strong are you, you know, how explosive are you? Now it becomes what type of quality of life can you live, you know, into your 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. So now I kind of more on the side of longevity and helping people improve where they are, where they are now. So decades down the road, they're in a much better spot. So I think it's just more so my own progression and what I am interested in myself and now kind of portraying that out into, you know, kind of Instagram, social media, or any, any job or uh, speaking engagement that I do, it's now more so related to more general health than it is athletic performance. So with that transition, then has that changed how you train yourself respectively? Or has that changed how you program for yourself? Or or like, do you have a coach? Yeah, so I, I still train very similar to an athlete. So I still do a lot of the moves like uh, I still do Olympic lifting. Uh, I got away from it for a while, but I'm kind of back into that. I started getting back into the CrossFit world. So that's kind of where I'm at right now. I mean, I've dabbled in basically everything. CrossFit's an area that I haven't really been a part of or experienced. So I'm kind of going through that. I like to see different things and experience it and feel it. So then when a client or somebody asks me a question, you know, I'm able to, I'm able to give them some information, but yeah, I train myself more so you know, like an athlete, but I also, when I have clients or I'm training people in a group setting, I do tend to stick to more of the structure of what you would see in an athletic setting, but I just regress the exercises back to, to, you know, meet the client where they're at. So the structure is still there. It still has an athletic feel because I do believe that everybody can train like an athlete, even though you may not be doing the the most advanced techniques, yeah. that style still is very beneficial to get stronger, more powerful, you know, it basically develop all components of fitness. So I like that. That's basically, you know, my style. Yeah, I, I would have to agree with that. I don't think that there should be a huge difference between training like gen pop and between train athletes. I mean, obviously, their goals and their outcomes are different. But the way that you structure and the way that you template a program shouldn't really be that different because a lot of it should be getting them in positions that they're not in generally, trying to make sure that you're equaling out and kind of giving them more, I don't, I don't know if we could use the word, but like balance, I guess you could say. Mm-hmm. So in that way, we're just trying to prevent injuries long term because it's all about, like you said, sustainability and longevity approach because you want to be able to do, do these things as you get older just because the chance of injury goes up, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, so... Where do you teach currently right now then? You said that you've worked at a couple different universities in the States, but um, where are you teaching at currently? Yeah, so I'm currently at American International College, which is in Springfield, Massachusetts. And that is my fourth faculty role that I've held, uh, my fourth different institution. So I'm an assistant professor within an exercise science department, and I'm also the internship coordinator because I'm a big proponent of you know, hands-on experience, you know, you can get a lot of information from a textbook, don't get me wrong, but you're not going to really develop the coaching skills 
or the communication or motivation skills that it takes to be a health and fitness professional by reading a textbook. No, so yeah. I love the internship coordinator piece of my job because that's that's very fulfilling. So many people helped me along the way. It's very fulfilling to help other people, you know, in the same capacity. Uh, so that's my fourth faculty role. Prior to that, I taught at Endicott College, which is also in Massachusetts, is in Beverly, Mass. Um, same role. I was a teacher and I also had the internship coordinator responsibilities. Prior to that, I was at Bridgewater State University in Massachusetts. That's where I did my undergrad and graduate work. So it was really cool to go back and teach at the same institution that I got my degree, same yeah. classrooms, same professors that were once yeah. my professor, they're now a colleague. And then I, my first job outside of my PhD was down in West Virginia. So I taught at a small school down in West Virginia. Uh, it's called West Virginia Wesleyan College. And I spent one year down there. Wasn't a big fan of the West Virginia area. I'm not much of a, you know, outdoorsy, rock climbing, hunting, fishing type of guy. So it just wasn't for me. My family wasn't down there, you know, really kind of down there by myself. So, but I really liked that position though, because I got to essentially coordinate the lab. So it was really cool as a yeah. new PhD to go down there and be able to kind of have some control over the lab and what's happening in there. That was great experience. Yeah, I was about to actually ask where you where you went to school. So that's that's cool that you're actually able to work directly with them, not mm -hmm. just being being a student in that scenario. Um, when did you actually start your schooling? When did you actually start your PhD? I started my PhD in 2015, and oh. excuse me, excuse me, 2012. I finished in 2015. So it took me about three years and I did my PhD at Springfield College. So my my undergraduate and master's was at Bridgewater. And then my PhD was at Springfield College in Massachusetts, which is literally like a mile down the road from where I'm teaching right now. Okay. Uh, both those schools are both in Springfield, Mass. And then you obviously enjoy teaching as of right now. What do you what do you teach primarily right now then? Exercise physiology stuff, right? So I teach primarily exercise physiology. I've taught uh, medical physiology in the past that's more related to clinical things like diabetes, blood pressure, metabolic syndrome. I teach a foundations of strength and conditioning course, a theory and practice of strength and conditioning. I teach therapeutic exercise. I teach a intro to health professions course, which I really like, especially being the internship coordinator. It allows yeah. me to introduce to the students what potential career options are available within yeah. exercise science, because I think people don't realize how many i call exercise science the spider web degree i don't think people realize how much of a you know how much flexibility you have in plenty of different career paths with a solid exercise science degree because once you understand the human body structure and function wise you are very marketable i feel especially in today's day and age with a massive push for people trying to get healthier and we need more qualified professionals in the health and fitness space. So that's a great kind of course because it gives them opportunity to understand what clinical routes are available. And then what about like the traditional strength and conditioning, you know, personal training, coaching, those types of routes. And then some things that people don't think about, you know, yeah. medical device sales, pharmaceutical sales. I mean, you can get into research. I mean, chiropractic, I've had students go MD. There's just a lot of different avenues within the field. Yeah, it kind of gives them some direction and somewhere to go with the education itself. Because I feel like a lot of other post-secondary um, programs, that's usually an issue for them, right? Like they'll they'll get like halfway through and then they're like, I actually don't know which direction I want to take this or where I want to go with it. So I think it's good that you, right from the start, 
you kind of make it very clear, okay, like this is what you can actually do with exercise physiology and you can actually like, you know, in exercise science, and then you can actually kind of help direct them and guide them. So that way, when you actually want to help them place, it's a lot easier at that point in time, right? It's not trying to be like, oh, where do you want to go now? It's like, they should know at that point where they want to go and where they see themselves working. Yeah. I, you know, the last thing I'll say on that is it's great because they take it essentially their freshman year. So like you're saying, they basically can create a roadmap of, okay, what does my sophomore, junior, senior year look like? What do I need to accomplish in all these years? And then if I do want to go to graduate school, what do I need to do within the four years to set myself up for the most amount of success? Do that your freshman, sophomore year. When I first became a professor, I just saw too many students would come to me like their senior year or God forbid, the second semester of senior year and then say, okay, what do I need to do? And it's like, man, you, you wasted, not wasted, but you missed out on, you know, two, three years of solid networking, professional yeah. development, personal growth in the field yeah. to be able to kind of go out. And I tell people all the time, you know, in today's modern day and age, most people, when they post a job, they know who they're going to hire. I mean, everything's networking now. You know, we have social media, we have LinkedIn, we have all these platforms where very rarely is somebody posting a job with like no short list in mind. And so networking is something that I talk to people about constantly, especially my students. There's no... You can never start networking too early, but you can yeah. also never start networking too late either. So some yeah. people will say, am I past the point? You know, is it is it useless for me to go out and try to yeah. grow my network? Absolutely not. I don't care if you only have a few years left in your career. There might be that one person that could catapult you to something that you never thought you were able to get to or whatever the case may be. So networking is really important. It's something that I bring up almost every day in class in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, I actually... I didn't do um, like a bachelor's or anything, but I did go to a, a school here in Edmonton, actually. So I live in Canada um, and in Alberta, and I did do a like a diploma for personal training, right? So then I actually did my CSEP CPT, which is going to be like your Canadian Society of Exercise Physiology. So it's like kind of one of the most well-known um, certs here for personal training, and obviously I learned a lot of the fundamentals and like the base skills just taking that program. But like you mentioned before, like I would say that I've learned the most just getting my feet wet because I know we before we discussed like how you can't learn from textbooks only and like how people aren't textbooks. Um, but also just like the amount of networking I've managed to do after that. I've probably done the most networking after that than I actually did in school. Um, obviously, I made those initial connections, but I would say a lot of my networking are from courses that I've done because we've all shared a mutual interest already just by being in the same course. But also with the podcast too, just being able to meet individuals like yourself that are passionate about this field and want to make a difference and make an impact. Um, so I definitely would like, again, really try to reinforce that networking is a great tool to utilize because it could set up good op uh, like opportunities for you job-wise, or it could even just have you, you know, working with maybe somebody like, like co-hosting a podcast or um, just opening doors up for you for like down the road. Yeah. And I mean, and I think we all need people to bounce ideas off of too. You know, there's yeah. people in my network that I don't necessarily communicate with on too regular of a basis, but when a certain thing comes up that we know we need each other, we're there for each other, you know? And, and I always tell my students when you're networking, I think it's best to uh, you as the person provide value to that person first. I think a lot of people try to network and it's like, okay, what can you do for me? 
And I like to play that opposite role of, okay, let me help you in some capacity. Let me show how I can, you know, enrich your career. And then we develop this kind of friendship. And that's, that's kind of how it evolves over time. You know, the people that are closest in your network should be like friends, not, you know, just people that are just bound, you know, taking advantage of each other back and forth. So I think that's really important is you got to approach it that way. You know, you have to, you you have, there's a give and take and compromise just like any other relationship. Yeah. And I think people need to try to realize that there's a difference between, you know, your, your network and like your, your friends, right. They aren't your competition by any means either. They should actually enhance and help you develop your skills that you lack. That's how I try to see it too, is like my other PTs that I work with or other online coaches that I see too, right. I don't see them as like direct competition. I see them as more like, okay, there's an area that you're better off in that you have more experience with that you're more confident with. Like, let me pick your brain on what you've done in the past, what's worked for you, maybe, you know, your schooling and your thought process. So that way I can develop my own skills better. So in that way it can help me bridge the gap easier and more. Yeah, I love it. You know, I I tell it's a lot of times in the class, I tell my students never, I can't say never, I hate using the word never because you're you're never supposed to use never always. But I always tell students, go get a second opinion, third opinion, you know, don't just listen to one person. If you've got a good network, get several opinions and make the best decision for you. You know, these things are complex. Everything is complex. And, you know, a textbook, when you read textbooks and things like that, it's basically, okay, in this perfect scenario, if this happens, this is what you do. Then you get into the real world and it's like, I never see that scenario because there's so many moving yeah. parts and there's yeah, so yeah. many yeah. things that you have to think about. The critical thinking skills, um, you got to be thrown into the fire to really develop that. You know, and like when I was young into the field, I'll st- I still remember, you know, one of my first uh, weeks at University of Connecticut, you know, I think that they, the coaches there just saw that, okay, this kid has some confidence and I think we can throw him in. They just threw me in. Okay, here's a group of athletes, go. And I was so nervous to do it, but it was the best thing that ever happened in my career because I don't know how much I would have been willing to make that jump, you know, and, and they threw me in and I loved it. It was, and and I never looked back, you know, I just developed more and more skill over time. So experiences plus the textbooks, you got to have both. Yeah. And like, I, I know at, um, at our gym that like I, I work at a commercial gym right now and I also do myself on the side separately. But a lot of people come into that job and like, they, let's say they have their bachelor's in kinesis and stuff. Um, a lot of them have that textbook knowledge. But then when it comes to like real life application, it's a lot different, right? Like they'll always be like, hey, this should be how it, you know, the, the fix ultimately. But then they have to go like way off and be like, hey, this is not going to work. They have to, actually have to modify their plan initially. And that's when like usually like them and I will talk and I'm like, hey, try this. But then they're like, this isn't in the textbook though. Or like, this isn't what they would, you know, generally say would be the the path to take. And then but that's the thing is that you have to go off. Sometimes you got to veer off the path. And you have to just try to find what works. And it's a lot of critical thinking too, being able to kind of just like think on the fly, which I think is a lot of like, again, useful skills as a coach or just as a practitioner in general too. Hmm. Um, so Let's get into gut health a little bit. I know that it's cool to just see that you have a background in both though. Obviously, like I like strength and conditioning myself. So that was one thing that I saw that you've done in the past that's piqued my interest. So I was curious to see what you've done for that. Um, But with gut health, it is obviously a very complex subject and a complex topic itself. So could you simplify it for the people listening 
um, just what it is, kind of what it entails and why it's so, so important to have um, healthy and just in, in check. Absolutely. I would say this off the start. There is, when you look at the research of gut health, there really isn't a defined definition of what is truly a healthy gut. And I say that because geographical location matters, age matters, gender can matter, what you eat, your environment, so many different things matter. And so I always highlight that right away. There's no defined definition. There's also a term known as dysbiosis. And basically that term is supposed to signify poor gut health or some change in the gut, okay? And I also wanna make sure that people know right from the start, there's still not a defined definition of dysbiosis either. For the listeners, if they hear that term, that term basically means that it's significantly, the gut uh, bacteria in the gut is significantly different than either a control group or some other group that they're comparing it to. So that's important right off the start. There's really no defined definition. So what are people looking as a healthy gut? Like what, what are we looking at? What are we talking about here? Essentially, your gut, your digestive tract has arguably tens of trillions of bacteria that line the whole intestinal tract. Some sources will say it's upwards of 100 trillion bacteria. Some are good and some are bad. What's interesting is some of the bacteria that may be good in my physiology may not be very beneficial for someone else's physiology. And that's what really makes this complex. And we've got great technology nowadays, things are getting better, and we are getting to a point where we can actually evaluate gut health a little bit. But I just want the listeners to know, it's kind of right now, the field is a little bit of the Wild West. We're still learning. Um, this field's about 10 years old as far as good quality research. So that's really young. Some people hear a decade and they say, oh, we've been studying this for a decade. We must know so yeah. much. It's just not the way the research world works. So yeah. we've got some basic level of understanding, but we don't have a tremendous level of understanding of the gut. So what also makes it more complicated is let's go a little bit deeper. So we have this bacteria in the gut. And the bacteria, the role of the bacteria, and this is what we call the gut microbiome. So if you add it up, like all the bacteria, we call that the gut microbiome, the bacteria plus the genes. If you were just looking at the bacteria itself, people will call it the microbiota. So I, you know, not to throw too many terms out there, but I want people to know what these terms mean when they hear them. So microbiome is the more common term that's used. And that's, like I said, related to all the bacteria and the genetic composition of that bacteria as well. Yeah. So what makes this really complicated is there's subsets of bacteria, and then there's also more subspecies from there. So here's the analogy. Think of like, invertebrates versus vertebrates. So if you were to look at, you know, the earth, for example. So basically there's these broad categories of bacteria. There's about 12 of them. We're not, we don't need to get into them, but know that there's 12 broad areas. 90% of the bacteria in your gut come from four of them. So we do have a good understanding of like the bulk of the bacteria that's there. But now think of it like from along the lines of now we go to the next level. Now it's like, think of 
dogs versus wolves versus like jackals. So now we're like kind of getting in the same relative area. And then it goes even deeper from there. So then you'd be looking at like species of dogs and so on and so forth. Then there's subspecies. The reason yeah. why I just went through all that is because some people will say, well, Dr. Swart, it seems pretty easy. There's, a, there's only 12 categories. How come we don't understand more at this point? And the, the answer is, it's the subspecies that really dictates how these bacteria function. Yeah. And that makes the whole thing massively complex. And that's yeah. what's the problem is because a lot of people that are on social media or just the media in general, they act like they know a lot about gut health, but they don't understand the complexity there. So there's not a lot that we can really say about the gut. But here's what we do know. We do know that the more diverse the bacteria, the healthier the gut seems to be. So the more different strains that you have, the better off you are. So you want diversity. That's an important term in gut health. The more diverse bacteria, the better off you're ultimately going to be. And like I said, some people have good bacteria. Some people have some bad bacteria. And the goal is, is to allow the good bacteria to flourish and kind of keep the bad or poor bacteria kind of suppressed a little bit. And there's dietary and lifestyle things that we can do to change that. We'll, we'll, we'll probably talk about that in a little yeah. bit. Yeah. So that's really important. The other thing that I want to talk about is when we talk about gut health, we're mainly talking about the large intestine. So just to give the listeners a brief overview, clearly, if I were to eat a piece of pizza, I'm going to chew that food. There's already enzymes in your mouth that are digesting that food. So we're already breaking it down in our mouth. It moves down the esophagus. It goes into the stomach. That's our holding tank. And then ultimately, food goes through the small intestine first, and then it goes through a large intestine. Now, the small intestine is where most of digestion and absorption takes place. What that means is that's where most of the food is getting broken down and dumped into the bloodstream. Okay. There's not a tremendous amount of research or when people are talking about the gut microbiome, they're not talking about the small intestine, even though there is bacteria in the small intestine. We're mainly talking about the large intestine where we don't see as much digestion and absorption. So by the time food gets to the large intestine, we're not breaking it down as much. Now we're kind of reabsorbing things. So the large intestine is where like electrolytes can get reabsorbed. Um, it's where we can see things like different vitamins or, you know, those types of things, water gets reabsorbed. And that's the area where we're really talking about, like I said, when we talk about the gut microbiome. And the last thing I'll say is it's really important to know that we, we look at two other terms too, something called richness and something called evenness. And it's important in gut health. And what that means is richness relates to how much bacteria is in like a certain area. So what's like the density of the bacteria? The term evenness refers to the proportion of the different strains of bacteria. So if it's very even, that's obviously your, the proportions are very even for all the different strains that are in that area. So that's just kind of like some of the kind of introductory information. Now we do know that some foods can interact in a poor manner and some foods interact in a good manner to your gut health, but that doesn't mean that that food has to be eliminated 24 seven. 
right? Yeah. And I'm going to yeah. explain a little bit of that in a second too. One of the most common examples is like red meat. So people will say that red meat is very damaging to the gut health and it's um, going to lead to an increase in cancer risk. And although some of that is true, if you have enough fiber and micronutrients, you don't see that anymore. So we'll talk about yeah. some of that stuff in a little bit. And then the last thing I'm going to throw up, because I think it's important, it's not important, but I think it's kind of an interesting fact sure. is if you added up all the bacteria, like if you literally could put it in a bag, it would weigh about two pounds. So you have a pretty significant amount of bacteria that's throughout the digestive tract that plays massive roles in your overall physiology. And the key roles are they help you metabolize and they also help produce vitamins. They can also create something, and this is really, really important. The good bacteria in your gut can create something known as short chain fatty acids. And basically it's an energy source and it's good. We want it. And yeah. basically what that means is my gut can create about, for some people, upwards of 200 calories per day. So that could be about 10% of someone's total calorie burn throughout the course of the day. But the really important reason why I bring up these short chain fatty acids is because if you have a good, healthy gut and you can, you can um, develop these short chain fatty acids, it really helps protect the mucus lining of the intestinal tract. So the intestinal tract has this mucus barrier. And if that barrier gets destroyed, that's when we start talking about, and you, you let me know if you want me to go down the, le the leaky gut conversation, but that, that term leaky gut that comes out in, in social media and stuff like that, that's what people are talking about. It's when that mucus layer gets degraded and now things can go into the bloodstream that we necessarily don't want to be there. And it can cause a lot of problems. Um, so that's really important to know the, these short chain fatty acids, they also regulate appetite, insulin control. I mean, just overall metabolism, they're very, very important to learn about if you're interested in, in the gut health research. Yeah. So the gut obviously itself can naturally, well, a lot of the intolerances probably probably be due to the gut health, right? Like a lot of like like intolerances that people would experience like let's say gluten or let's say dairy or any of that stuff would be due to to, to the uh microbiomes then yep it's it's kind of it's a that's a hard question to answer because some are acute and some are kind of longer changes so you know like you can absolutely develop certain food insensitivities or food sensitivity excuse me and then when you correct the gut microbiome you can reintroduce some of those foods so it's not like yeah. it's all you always have to avoid those. And there's also, once again, you can tell me if you want me to go down this rabbit hole, but there's also a diet called the FODMAP diet. And that diet stand, it's fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monosaccharides, and polyols. And basically these are forms of carbohydrates. And the FODMAP diet is a way of kind of selectively getting rid of certain carbohydrates um, in, in that may cause some gas, bloating, distension, or any type of um, issue within the gut. And this is something you would want to go to a registered dietitian for, but they would slowly pull these things out and then reintroduce them to see which ones were really irritating the gut and creating some symptoms that, you know, just weren't good symptoms for you. So let's talk a little bit more about that. I do think that, um, Gluten intolerance is a pretty common thing for a lot of people. And I know that um, people typically want to cut carbs back, but end up cutting carbs out entirely. Um, so let's talk a little, a little bit more about that, if you don't mind. Yep. 
there are certainly people that are gluten intolerant that have celiac disease, but I think unfortunately in today's modern era, most people that are quote unquote experts in gut health, they're just telling everybody that they have celiac disease or some gluten intolerance. And it's more so related to diet and lifestyle, which yeah. is really, really important because another thing that I want to bring up is, you know, you have certain genes and there's, gen there's genetics that, you know, are going to control or at least dictate some of the gut microbiome. But 20 to 60% of how the gut microbiome changes is directly related to diet and exercise. And so that in lifestyle in and of itself. So that's really, really important, you know, to kind of discuss a little bit. But as far as the gluten, I do want to talk about this a little bit. So here's what's kind of happening. The people who do suffer from, you know, uh, gluten issues, there's a protein in the gluten. And basically what happens is... When you look at the intestinal tract, these cells, the intestinal cells have a little gap in between them. And that's a good thing, right? It's not like that's abnormal, but if that gap widens, that's what causes some problems. And there's a protein in gluten that widens that gap and it'll start to allow things to go into the bloodstream, either from bacteria or walls of bacteria. We call that LPS lipopolysaccharides, which really um, creates this, this endotoxemia in the blood, which we really don't want. Uh, and then we can get proteins that shouldn't be in the blood that go into the blood and start to cause inflammatory issues. And it's really the inflammation that's, that's causing the root of the problems with things like gluten intolerances and, and, and so on and so forth. But I yeah. just want to say, because I think it's really important there's too many people just jumping and saying, oh, you have a gluten intolerance, so you have to cut all these things out. And it's more so, no, let's take a look at the diet and lifestyle. Let's fix some of what you're already doing. And then maybe you can introduce these things perfectly fine without any problems. So it's a much bigger conversation than people want to make it out to be. You know, yeah. unfortunately, so many people just want to say, hey, what's wrong with me? Tell me what to avoid. And I'll just do that. You know, and it, it's, it's yeah. typically usually not that easy. No, people always just want quick fixes, though, unfortunately, and then they always want, and that's the quickest fix is like, okay, well, I get bloated from gluten, so, or they think it's from gluten, so then they just cut it out entirely. So, but again, I think that's a, a common thing, too, just in the industry in general, is just people trying to be experts on things that they're not. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the discrepancy that needs to be addressed, because if it's without, it's a, if it's outside of your scope, that's totally fine. But I think it's, you know, I've talked about it on here before it's good to refer out and to like to when to know to refer out, but also like going back to the networking thing too, right? Having a network of people around you that you can refer to and, you know, hopefully it'll come back to you in a sense as well. It's people that you trust that you are willing to send people that way. Um, like I have, you know, a, I have a physio that I like to send people to. I have a massage therapist I like to send people to, right? But people that I trust and then when they go, they have good experiences. So, um, Again, it's, there's a lot of utility in that, but just knowing what is within your scope, but then also just knowing when it's like, okay to say, I don't know, um, versus trying to make up something and give somebody false hope or give them false information that they could be trying to apply. Yeah, I, I agree a thousand percent. And two other things I just wanted to touch on briefly is just because we see changes in the gut. So like we, when we do research on the gut microbiome and we introduce some you know, food or molecule, and we see a little bit of changes in the gut, 
we don't even know if those changes are good, bad, or even if they matter. So that's really important for the listener to know as well. You know, when that's why I started this podcast with the dysbiosis term, because people will say, oh, I ingested this uh, artificial sweetener and it impacted the gut and it created gut dysbiosis. And it's like, well, time out. Yeah, that just means that it changed the gut. But did it change? Did you have any symptoms? Did it did it create any other negative impact? So that that's right then and there. I just want to make sure people understand we don't even know what changes really matter and what don't matter. What level, what's the significance of a 2% change versus a 10% change? At what point is it pathology? And at what point is it just simply a slight difference in physiology? And then the last thing I wanted to say, or the second thing to bring up, is people also need to be aware that when you read a lot of the gut research, they're researching the bacteria and looking at stool samples oftentimes, which is different than what you would see in the actual large intestine. And sometimes it could be similar, but sometimes it could be very different. So people need to understand the data in many cases is coming from the stool and not the actual place that we're looking to study. That's important for people to understand. And that's just part of the field being new. You know, it's going to take time for technology to be able to really analyze the gut microbiome. We're getting there. We've got good technology and it will continuously get better. But people do need to understand the limitations of what we do know in the research. Yeah. So I was actually, that's a good point. I was going to ask that before. Um, so if somebody wanted to get their gut health actually checked so that you just made the the um, statement there that the stool sample is actually not going to be the best way to go. Um, how would you recommend somebody get their gut health checked then and, and kind of assessed? At this point, there's like, I mean, there's a bunch of different tests. There's breath tests that are out there. There's different colonoscopies, endoscopies, all that type of stuff. If I, for my clients and people that are interested in learning about their gut uh, at that level, which aren't, there's not a ton of people right now that are willing to, you know, kind of invest in that level um, as far as what, what, what I deal with. But typically, if somebody's interested in that, I send them to their family physician. There are, don't, don't get me wrong, there are like these take-home tests and things that are out there. None of them are really validated. If you're going to really want to understand what your gut microbiome is, and it, especially if you're looking into a probiotic. So the only time, this is just my personal opinion, but the only time I would recommend somebody to go get their gut analyzed or their, their microbiome analyzed is if they, the, a probiotic was basically kind of like their last ditch effort of, I got to do something. I've checked all the boxes, you know, I'm, I'm doing all these, I don't want to spoil or alert, give all the positive things, but I checked all the boxes of what I need to do for good gut health. Now I need to lean on some supplementation, go to your family physician. You're going to go to a gastroenterologist and actually get a specific analysis of the bacteria that's in your gut. Because unfortunately, so many people want to jump to these probiotic supplements that are out there that it's kind of like blindly throwing something at the dartboard. Remember yeah. how I said there's tens of trillions of bacteria, yeah. tons of different species. And yeah. when you get a probiotic, it's only a certain number of species. And then we also know that based off of what we see in the literature, there's really only a few conditions that probiotics are really helping. And outside of that world, it's kind of, it's a drop in the bucket. It can produce some health benefits for some people, don't get me wrong. 
but we don't see massive changes with a lot of the common probiotics that are out there. We're still at the state where you want to go to, you know, a, a healthcare professional to get those. Yeah. At that point, it's hard to narrow down exactly what's helping what. Hmm. So that's why it's probably not the best approach to be taking just because it's like, it's like kind of when you give a client uh, like six different exercises for like a rehab program. It's like, well, how do you know exactly which exercise is helping per se? Hmm. That makes sense entirely. Um, so we'll jump back a little bit onto the exercise and the dietary benefits because I do think that's going to be very beneficial for a lot of listeners on the podcast. Um, so what are some things that you'd recommend doing uh, as far as trying to improve your own gut health? Um, just for, you know, not like, I'm not, I don't want to say home remedy stuff because it's not, but just trying to improve your gut health just via lifestyle changes. Yep. So absolutely, just like any other healthy dietary and lifestyle intervention, you know, getting in, first of all, paying attention to calories. Let's just start there. People who have an overabundance amount of calories, especially calories coming from processed foods, saturated fats, the diversity of the gut microbiome goes down. So we want to we want to avoid, you know, uh, high levels of saturated fat. Obviously, there's also data on um, alcohol. So small amounts of alcohol, uh, can actually be beneficial for your gut. Um, so that's, that's something there's an acid in alcohol that actually can seem to increase the diversity. There's also, uh, walnuts have been very beneficial as far as improving gut health, basically anything with omega threes. So omega threes are really increasing diversity, fatty fish, nuts, seeds, oils, very, very beneficial. Um, Obviously, fiber. So one of the things, you know, people talk a lot about probiotics, but fiber, and there's different types of fiber, there's soluble fiber, there's insoluble fiber, but the fiber that you're eating essentially is feeding the good bacteria. And fiber has what are called prebiotics. And just think of prebiotics as food that the, that the actual bacteria is going to eat and flourish. So we, we want people to be able to have high fiber foods you know, whole grains, think of fruits and vegetables, beans, you know, uh, all these different types of foods that are going to give us the, the solid fiber that we need. And yeah. somebody, a lot of times people ask, well, how much fiber do I need per day? And a lot of times the common recommendation is like 25 grams ish for females. And it's usually upwards of about 38 grams for males. And I tell people that's a bad way to look at it. I think you should look at it per thousand calories in your diet. So I always tell people for every thousand calories in your diet, try to ingest about 14 grams, 14, 15 grams of fiber. So fiber is really important, um, you know, for, for the gut health. Fermented foods can be very beneficial um, for some people. Now, the research is mixed on it. How much or how significant is this impact? Uh, but fermented foods do have an impact. So things like kefir, kimchi. Um, sauerkraut, those are things that, you know, are fermented, they've got good bacteria, uh, they're really helping to increase the amount of bacteria that's in that gut. Uh, so that's important. And when we see the fermented foods, we see things like a decrease in um, LDL, so decrease in cholesterol in the bloodstream with these with these uh, fermented foods, we see a decrease in risk of cardiovascular disease, decrease in risk of colorectal cancer, um, so, you know, eating these fermented foods can absolutely help things like kombucha get thrown out a lot. Uh, kombucha doesn't have a lot of research to be honest behind it, 
But if you're getting a good kombucha source, I mean, it can provide something. Don't get me wrong. Absolutely. That could be beneficial. Um, when we start to look at exercise, low intensity exercise seems to be beneficial for like increasing gut motility. So kind of allowing the food to move through the gut in a little bit kind of cleaner, healthier manner. So that's really important as well. Those are kind of like, you know, making sure you're eating fruits and vegetables, making sure you got your fiber, making sure you're staying physically active, making sure you're hydrated. So hydration is important because that's going to keep the proper consistency of the stool. So there's something known as the Bristol stool chart that people can look up. And it's like visual of uh, consistency of stools. And it tells you what's considered healthy and it has different pictures. Hydration and making sure you stay hydrated is really important in the, the gut health as well and in in overall the gut microbiome. Caffeine is another one. So caffeine, you know, low amounts of caffeine or normal amounts of caffeine uh, actually has been shown to increase uh, the diversity of gut bacteria. Now, whether or not that's a massive thing, we don't know yet, but that has also been shown to, to increase as well. So, you know, typically your traditional things, and then last but not least, we brought up the probiotics. Probiotics can help the gut, but mainly in people that suffer with IBS, um, IBD, irritable bowel disease, things like Crohn's, ulcerative yep. colitis. There's some information on like respiratory tract infections and things like that um, can be beneficial. Uh, different um, NSAIDs. So another one is like the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. Probiotics can actually be helpful for people who maybe take more NSAIDs than they should, kind of counteract some of the, the negatives. Um, those are just some of the things I throw out as far as good overall practices for gut health. And then the last thing I'll say is monitor your gut, right? So a lot of times people ask me, it's an uncomfortable conversation, but as far as like frequency of bowel movements, how do I know if my gut health is, is in a proper spot? And I tell people, think of the number three. So usually for most people, you, you want to be going, you want to be having a bowel movement no more than three times a day, unless you're having a large calorie consumption. So of course it could be more than that if you're in a bulking phase, so to speak, and you're eating a lot of calories, but usually zero to three times a day, and then at least three times a week. So think of the three number. If, you're go if you have bowel movements that are less than three times a week, there's a good chance there's probably some dysfunction there in the gut. And then depending on stool consistency, like I said, if, if that frequency goes above three, you might want to start to pay attention to that a little bit, especially if you're not, if you know you're not eating a ton of calories. So think of the number three when it comes to kind of evaluating gut health and bowel movement frequency. Awesome. Awesome. I think there's a lot of valuable information from what we went through today. I mean, obviously, like you mentioned before, gut health is very new, relatively speaking, right? Just being that has been only researched really over the past 10 years, which seems like a long time, but when you look at the body and how complex it is, it's not really that long at all. No. It's only a decade. Um, but if somebody was wanting to get into, you know, working more with gut health or maybe just kind of going the exercise physiology route, um, where would you advise that they begin doing that? So before I do that, I also just want to touch briefly on a couple of the negative things for gut health. Um, just oh, a couple sure, yeah. more, yeah. just a couple more that I have that I did want to make sure I threw in here. There are sure, some things to think about that are detrimental to gut health. Okay. And one of them is a really high fat diet. 
And I bring that up because there's a big push for in certain fitness circles for the carnivore diet or this keto diet that's really, really high fat, really low carbohydrate. Now, I'm not saying that you can't do those diets and have success, but I am saying that if you are on a high fat diet and greater than 40% of your calories are coming from fat, you do want to pay attention to gut health. So pay attention to bowel movements, frequencies, pay attention to, you know, symptoms, bloating, gas, all those types of things. That's really important if you have a really high fat diet. Sure. Usually people that have high carbohydrate diets and high fiber diets tend to have a more diverse and healthier gut microbiome. Does that mean that they're healthier overall? Absolutely not, right? We're just talking about one small, one area of physiology. Yeah. Um, so that is that can be very detrimental, you know, um, the fats, the saturated fats have been shown to be detrimental as well, um, as far as decreasing the diversity of the gut. Things like statins, which are cholesterol drugs, lipid lowering drugs, they you got to be careful with statins. We're seeing some data where statins can decrease the diversity of the gut. Now, how important that is, we still don't know yet. There's a drug known as metformin, which is a very common diabetic drug that uh, decreases glucose production in the liver, so it limits blood sugar. It's very clear that metformin disrupts the gut. Now, once again, we're still trying to figure out how significant that is, but it's a significant change. Metformin really decreases the diversity of the gut microbiome. Um, uh, antacids, proton pump inhibitors for anybody that's on these types of medications, these are medications that change the pH of kind of the digestive tract in certain areas of the, the digestive tract, which yeah. can absolutely impact, you know, the bacteria in, in, in the gut and all throughout the digestive tract. So those are some of the things that you definitely want to watch out for. Watch out for inactivity, um, you know, all, all those types of things. Uh, and then processed foods. Everybody knows that, right? Fried foods, all those types of things that we hear, packaged foods. I'm not saying you can't ever have those things because I like French fries from time to time. You know, I enjoy, you know, some, some processed foods, so to speak. But if your diet is comprised of that, obviously that's going to impact um, the gut in a negative way. Yeah. And then real quick, because I forgot to mention, and I have to throw this out there, two vitamins that actually have been shown to produce some health benefit for the gut are vitamin A and vitamin D. So I just wanted to kind of throw that out there for some of the listeners. Both of those have shown to have some impact, you know, some positive impact on the gut. And then be careful with, you know, same thing. If staying hydrated is good for the gut, dehydration is bad for gut health. So make sure you're drinking your water. It's one of the easiest, um, simplest kind of overall low hanging fruit health things that you can do that impacts just about all areas of physiology. Right on. Awesome. Yeah, no, no, I think that was a, uh some good things to include just towards the end about um, some negative things to try to avoid. Uh, just obviously talking about the things to try to focus on too, right? So then people can actually take this away from the episode and um, mm -hmm. try to apply this and just monitor it too. I think a lot of it's just about creating more awareness of what you're doing um, as far as consumption goes, but then as far as also just your overall activity, just because you're trying to live a healthier lifestyle and live a longer life too. Um, but yeah, so if somebody was wanting to get into, to just kind of bounce back to the, that final question, if yep. somebody was wanting to work in exercise science or phys, uh, or maybe even just kind of work with like, you know, gut health and like dive deep, dive into that, dive deep into that, sorry. Um, where would you recommend that they begin doing that? 
Yeah, so I think that in, in it's hard, sometimes this is hard for me to say as a professor, but like if you're interested in exercise physiology, sometimes people think, oh, I got to go get a college degree and I got to go do, there's tons of resources. There's tons of great um, things that are out there to be able to get into the exercise physiology world. So number one, I would tell people, you know, just pick up a basic exercise physiology textbook. Um, it's going to be harder to kind of, at some level, it's harder to grasp that if you're not a self-paced learner, if you're not an intrinsically motivated person, but, you know, just picking up a basic ex-phys textbook can start to get you in the right direction, following the right people on social media that are, that are putting out good content in the physiology world is all great. But the number one thing is like we talked about earlier, if you go into a facility, whether that be a strength and conditioning facility, a gym, uh, more of a clinical facility, oftentimes people are very willing to let you shadow for a day. And that's where people really can pick professionals' brains. They can see how the job functions. Uh, and typically when you shadow somebody and you just kind of observe for a few hours, that very well can lead into some sort of an internship or volunteer experience. You don't need to be part of a college program or something like that to do an internship. So being hands-on is really, really important, especially young in your career. So that's the biggest recommendation that I have is simply, you know, find some facilities that are in your local area that you could go to -to face-to-face and actually introduce yourself, shake their hand, look them in the eye and start to kind of pick their brains of how did they learn? What, what resources, who do they follow? Who do they respect? Those are all positive things that, that really are beneficial. Um, And then there's plenty of people like within the nutrition and gut health world um, that, you know, I often recommend people to Uh, there's a lady name or she, I forget where she teaches, but her name is Jesse Hoffman. And she, you can, you can see her on Instagram and stuff like that. She creates a ton of great content. A lot of what I said today is from her. She's a really good gut health expert. So she's, if somebody's interested in gut health, that's a good one. Um, there's another expert that I learn a lot from in the gut health world. Her name is Gabrielle Fondero. And so plenty of, I mean, she's been on a ton of podcasts. Uh, she's a very, very excellent, excellent uh, fitness and health communicator. Uh, you'll, people would learn a ton of information you know, from her as well. And then don't discount YouTube in today's day and age. You can learn so much on YouTube and just the basics of exercise physiology and nutrition and how this all kind of goes hand in hand. One people that one person, excuse me, that I recommend a lot, uh, who's a professor out in California in the United States is Dr. Andy Galpin. Uh, he creates a ton his YouTube page. He's got such great university level content on YouTube for free that you can just start to develop the basic skills of physiology and how this all kind of plays together. So those are some kind of people in the field that I respect that I always kind of um, open people's eyes up to, to to start to look at as far as who's putting out good content that you can learn a lot from that's updated knowledge, not, you know, that are up to date with the current research. Those are those are really good people. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a lot of value in that for sure. It's It's about finding resources that you trust that you would pull information from yourself, right? Um, and then obviously, as long as they're putting out regular, obviously recurring information, that's a big, can be a benefit to you as well. But um, again, thank you very much, Dr. Swart. It was really great to talk to you about just everything that we discussed today. 
um, learn a little bit more about gut health myself because I don't know that much about it. So it's nice to be able to dive into it and have some take-homes even for myself, right? Just so that I can start applying or trying to monitor more closely when it comes to my own performance too, just so that way I can be performing optimally. Yeah, I appreciate it. I really appreciate the opportunity to come onto your platform and just share my knowledge. You know, I'm, I'm very passionate about health and fitness and gut health is an area that is emerging and it's a new field. So I really enjoy learning about it. And so I always, you know, I guess the last thing I'll say is just for any listeners out there, just in full disclosure, I am not a gut health researcher. It's just an interest area of mine. You know, I don't, I'm not in the lab doing gut, I'm not hands-on doing gut health research. I read it, but I'm not, that's not my area as far as, you know, what, what I do in our human performance lab at AIC. So I just want to throw that disclaimer out there, but, you know, I appreciate the opportunity. I'm very passionate about this field, obviously. What I'm most passionate about is I just don't want the, the magnitude of effect is overblown in many circles. So people will say, oh, do this and it's going to take you to this great level or they, they overpromise things. And I feel like my position in this field for the last handful of years has been to give people the realistic expectations of what we know and what we see and not let people fall victim to marketing hype and spend their money on things that are just not going to be the best bang for their buck. I want people to really take advantage of the low hanging fruit that's out there in health and fitness, but also have the tools to not get duped because it's easy to get duped because people throw out these terms and they sound really smart and it sounds good. And, you know, oftentimes people emotionally make a decision because they're struggling with their health and fitness and they spend money that that money could be allocated towards coaching. That money could be allocated towards healthier foods, better exercise equipment. So that's my main thing of doing, you know, these podcasts. And that's the reason why I'm so motivated to do this type of stuff is because this is the next frontier of my career. I want people to know and have the tools to make informed health decisions. So they're the driver of their own health, not just simply listening to other people in a passenger and stumbling along the way. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, so if people want to stay up to date with you and what you do, um, I will obviously plug your information at the beginning of the podcast. Um, but if you want to just list off some ways to follow you and stay up to date with what you do, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So the easiest way to follow me is Instagram. So my Instagram handle is at dr.swart. Um, I do have a TikTok, but I barely use it. It's mostly Instagram that I kind of put content out on. And then if anybody wants to have like a deeper conversation or they want to email me as far as like AIC is concerned, you know, you can clearly Google American International College in Massachusetts, um, go onto the exercise science page on that website. You'll see my email address. Uh, it is Christopher.Swart, S-W-A-R-T, at AIC.edu. So if anybody's out there, you know, that wants to email me, go ahead. I tell people, to be honest with you, your best chance of getting the fastest response is Instagram. I'm on Instagram a lot. And so oftentimes I'm checking that more than email. So if somebody yeah. is looking for like a quick response, feel free. You can direct message me on Instagram. I help as many people as possible. It's hard to help everybody. But if you have a, a specific question, I'm very willing to spend some time and try to answer what I can. You know, people did that for me along the way. I want to pay it forward. This is your permission to slide in the DMs. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, thank you. Thank you, Bryce.